Uh, well, praise the Lord for that time. Uh, we get to now move into a time of worship through the study of God's Word. And so if you would turn with me into, in your Bibles to the book of Haggai. Uh, if you haven't been with us, you're going to have to go near to the end of the Old Testament, three books from the end, to find Haggai. Haggai was a, a prophet that uh, was sent to the remnant of the Jews that had um, been released from captivity uh, in Babylon. They had been there for 70 years and returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And they had begun pretty successfully. They had been able to lay the foundation of the, uh, the temple that came with a lot of people and resources. And, but, but pretty soon afterwards, some opposition arose locally, uh, and then that eventually went up to the government and the new king at the time. Uh, ordered them to stop building, and so they did, and they stopped for 15 to 16 years, somewhere in that time. And so Haggai was sent to to the people to uh, convince them to continue the work, to pick back up their tools and start the work of building the temple. And there's just a small couple of chapters in this book, but it's packed with a lot. And so we looked at the first week at um, Haggai's first of four messages to the people. And the overall message, and really the overall message of the whole book, is consider your ways. It really means give attention to your heart. Um, What are the things your heart is set on? Consider carefully your life and what are you doing with your life. See, they had left the work uh, of God to focus on their own lives and had forgotten completely about the temple. It laid um, unfinished for all these years. And so God began to chastise them by withdrawing blessing. They went through economic hardship, depression. Um, And so Haggai had to come and kind of convince them to pick up the tools again. And after his first message, after he he said those things to them to examine their, their lives, they did respond with obedience. They did respond in fear. And they began... Uh, to take up the work once again. But soon after that, the people once again became discouraged. Some of them were looking at this new temple that they were building, and they were remembering the first temple, the Temple of Solomon, the magnificent, wonderful beauty of that temple. And they were looking at this little thing that they had started and said, this is puny, this is worthless. And so they become discouraged and said, why? What, what good, what value does this work have? And, and so the second message came from Haggai, and we looked at that last week. He began with a message of encouragement. You remember the threefold exhortation to be strong, that they had a rich history in the Jewish tradition of of going way way back to Moses and to Joshua and even to, to David, to Solomon, orders to be strong. And why should they be strong? Because in verse five of, of chapter two, God said, for I am with you. Uh, the reason they should continue on in strength and confidence is because God promised to be with them. And that was a covenanted promise. He said, when I brought you out of Egypt, I said, I would be, I would be with you. Um, and so he reminded them of that promise. And then the second thing he encouraged them with was just a glimpse, a little glimpse of his plans for the future. Yeah, this temple doesn't look like much, but I've got some great things planned, some glory that will enter that temple. And if you look at verse um, 6, of chapter 2. He says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more it is a little while, and I will shake heaven and earth, the sea, and dry land. And I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory. And, and, and he is looking not even to this temple or, or what would become Herod's uh, temple, but looking beyond even that to a future temple, 
a messianic uh, temple that would be built, that would be filled with God's glory. It's a greater temple. And in verse 9, he speaks of that. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace. So we know he wasn't talking about that temple. Certainly wasn't a time of peace. It wasn't a time of peace when Jesus came and, and walked in that, to that temple. But there will be a temple. And it will be filled with God's glory. It will dwell on earth. And it will be a time of peace. And that is the, the, the encouragement that Haggai brought to those people. And now we come to the second half of chapter 2. And it's been just a couple of months. And Haggai comes to them with the final two messages from the Lord. And we're going to look at all of this section today. It's verses 10 through 23. Would you follow along as I read? Beginning of verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priests concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, will it become holy? And then the priests answered and said, No. And Haggai said, If one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? And so the priests answered and said, It shall be unclean. And then Haggai answered and said, So, so is this people. And so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. And now carefully consider from this day forward, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days, when one came to a heap of 20 ephahs, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw out 50 baths from the press, there were but 20. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail, in all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Consider now, from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it, is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit. But from this day I will bless you. And again the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. And in that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shiltiel, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word to us today. And Lord, as we finish up this passage of scripture, we thank you, Lord, that you have um, uh, preserved this for us, a message that was given to your people so long ago, saved that we might hear it today. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us and illuminate truth, Lord, that we might uh, find encouragement ourselves, Lord, for this time that we find ourselves living in. And, uh, Lord, maybe an exhortation to live rightly for you. So bless our time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll have a simple outline. First, we're just going to look at God's warning that he gives to the people against contamination, to not be contaminated. Look at this. It starts in verse 10 and 11 here. On the 24th day of the month, the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, uh, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, now ask the priests concerning the law. 
So this is a message, first of all, and a couple of questions coming to the priests of the land. And we're going to talk a bit here about what the priests uh, did and, and why this is important. But let's look at these questions because they will lead into it, and they're very interesting questions. The first question, verse 12, if one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, will it become holy? And then the priests answered, and said no. Now, this is a weird question. First of all, it's talking about holy meat. I don't know if anyone's eaten holy meat. What is holy meat? Well, it, it goes all the way back to the book of, of Leviticus. And, and you know, that's that book that everybody skips. <laughs> you get Genesis, Exodus. Oh, yeah, I don't want to read that. Deuteronomy, right? Because it's just full of all the sacrifices and all the blood and the offerings. And, and people generally don't, don't like that. But it really goes back to that. The, 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 the Levites, okay, the de- descendants of the tribe of Levi were the ones that were selected by God to be the priests of the people. And now an Old Testament priest was a mediator, right? A mediator between God and the people, right? He, he's the one that interceded for them. And a priest was specially consecrated. That word is an interesting word. That means set apart. They were set apart to minister to the Lord. And in the Old Testament, when this first uh, came about, it was to be Aaron and his sons, and it would go through uh, sort of their, their bloodline. In Exodus chapter 28, verse 1, it says this, Now take Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as priest. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Now, part of the consecration process for setting them apart for priests was very interesting. They had to make special garments, uh, holy garments. Um, And they would wear those for the express purpose of ministering to the Lord. And then they, they sacrificed a ram as an offering to the Lord, and some of the blood of the ram was sprinkled on the garments. Now, I don't know why would you take brand new garments and then splatter blood on them, but it was significant. It was part of the process of consecrating or setting apart those garments for a particular purpose as the priests were going to be set apart for a particular purpose. And so that ram was, was sacrificed, and then the blood went on the garments, and that made them holy. In Exodus 29, 29, we're told, And the holy garments of Aaron shall be his sons after him, to be anointed in them and to be consecrated in them. Do you see that? So the garments are holy, and when they wear them, then they are, as well, holy, consecrated. All right, then the meat from that same ram was to be boiled in a holy place, and then they had to eat the, the meat of the ram. In Exodus 29, verse 32, it says, Then Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. They shall eat those things with which the atonement was made to consecrate and to sanctify them. But an outsider shall not eat them. Why? Because they're holy. See the picture there? They're set apart. And so is the meat. And so are the garments. And so because they're set apart and the priests are set apart, then those things are for them. And an outsider is not allowed to participate in those things. They're for them. So holy meat, then, was meat that had been set apart, all right, especially as an offering to the Lord. So the question is a simple question, okay? Since that meat is holy, can holiness be transmitted? Can holy meat transfer its holiness to the garment and the garment then to something else and so on? Is that how holiness works, Is it something that can simply be touched on from one to another? And the priest very obviously answers, well, no, holiness cannot be rubbed off. 
right? Onto someone else, uh, from one thing to another. Holiness doesn't work in that very simple manner. And then in question 13, the opposite question comes. Okay, and Haggai says in verse 13, if one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? And so the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. Now, what is true of holiness is not, a, not true of uncleanness, right? If you are unclean and touch something else, that too will be unclean. If I am sick, I can easily pass my sickness on to you, but I cannot pass my health, right? And this is the picture here, right? This is someone who is unclean. And so in Leviticus chapter 22, verse 3, the Lord gave this command to Aaron and his sons. Whoever of all your descendants throughout your generations who goes near holy things, which the children of Israel dedicate to the Lord, while he has uncleanness upon him, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I'm the Lord. Now, this is very interesting and very, very important. God said, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to take you out of Egypt. I'm going to be your God. But if I'm going to be your God, then there's something very special you've got to understand, right? I'm going to need some people who are holy. I'm going to need some people who are set apart and who will not defile themselves, who will not be uh, unclean. And this is the picture here with these priests, right? They understand the idea of being set apart and they understand the idea of defilement. You, you can trans, transmit defilement from one thing to another, but you cannot transmit holiness. Now, these are really unusual questions, right? And why is Haggai asking the, these, these priests these very obvious questions? To make a point. And the point comes in verse 14. Look at it. Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Do you see that? Well, that's this people. That's this nation. This is their their work. Everything that they're doing is unclean. Yes, they're working on God's temple. Yeah, they're, they're, they're working hard in sacrificial service. But are their hearts really in it? I mean, some of them are looking at it and going, oh, it's not a big temple. It's going to be, not, you know, and, and maybe begrudgingly doing it. Are they really doing it for God? Remember, some of them really were even probably really reluctant to even lift anything because of the worry. We looked at this last week about this, this going back up to the governors and back up to, to the king again, right? Why even start this whole process? Because it's starting to gain attention again. You know, the king's probably going to shut us all down again. So there was probably some complaining. There definitely was. Uh, God pointed it out. There was probably some reluctance. There was probably some submission without honor, without a heart change. We used that phrase at the parenting thing yesterday, submission without honor, didn't we? as we talked about it. We talked about establishing your authority as a, as, a, as a parent, right? And submission without honor is really still rejection of authority. Submission without honor is like, all right, I'll just go do it, right? And so you do the task, but there's really no heart in there to want to honor the person giving you that task. I want to do it, but we're called to do everything heartily unto the Lord. And so there's some of that going on. God does not want reluctant obedience. He wants joyful, willing obedience. That's what he wants. But they had been disobedient, hadn't they? They had stopped building for 15, 16 years. And so disobedience, okay, now get this, disobedience even renders sacrificial service, okay, something like that, unacceptable to God. I don't care what you're doing. If you're disobedient, I don't accept it. It's contaminated, if you will, by their disobedience. Now, a very vivid illustration of of this is given to us 
in 1 Kings chapter 8. You guys remember this well, I'm sure. King Saul, the first king of Israel, is commanded to go and attack the Amalekites and kill every single one of them. Now, it seems brutal, but it's men, women, children, everything they own. And it goes way back to Deuteronomy because the Amalekites ambushed the children of Israel when God was bringing them to the promised land. He said, I'm going to avenge that, which takes us back to something else, right? God's the avenger. Well, God's using Samuel to bring the vengeance. He said, I want you to go kill the king. His name is Agag and kill all the Amalekites and leave nothing. What did King Saul do? He went and, and, and killed certain amount of them, but he kept King Agag, brought him back, and then he brought back a certain amount of the spoil. It says this, he spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and, and they were unwilling to utterly destroy them. That's the actual words that he uh, uses. They were unwilling. So Samuel, the prophet at the time, has to go to him because God has said, listen, Saul is not a king that wants to obey me, um, so I'm going to reject him. Go and tell him. And so Samuel goes to Saul, and what's Saul's first words? Hey, welcome in the name of the Lord. I've done just what the Lord commanded. And he says, you did, did you? Well, I'm hearing, why am I hearing sheep and oxen? What's that sound? I love Samuel's attitude. He's like, well, what's that? And so Saul kind of tries to explain it away, doesn't he? He's like, oh, well, that, you know, we, we, the people took that. The people took that to, uh, to, to sacrifice to the Lord. Yeah, that's what it is. It's a sacrifice to the Lord. We've done it for the Lord. Samuel doesn't accept that excuse, and neither does God. And so this is Samuel's answer to him in 1 Samuel, it's 15, sorry, 1 Samuel 15. So Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. God wants obedience over sacrifice. Obedient actions um, uh, as well as obedient heart. And so there's many ways where we see in Scripture God's uh, being rejected as their authority. When they challenge authority, when they delayed their response or made up excuses like Saul did here, or do it unwillingly, submission without honor. And Haggai then is calling these people back to a heart of repentance, to once again want to serve God out of a heart of joyfulness, right? And to pursue uh, purity because their holiness is at stake. Their holiness is essential. Why? What, what has God just reminded them of in, in all of this? His promise to be with them, right? And to be their God. A promise that he made when he brought them out of Egypt. But with that promise, he gave a command. And I want to remind you of this command. In Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 to 45, he says, For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves. Remember that word? Set apart. Consecrate yourselves and you shall be holy. For I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. God's very simple explanation to the people is that if I'm going to be your God and be amongst you, then you've got to be holy. Why? Because I am. And God is holy. And when we talk about this word holy, it's very similar to consecrate, but it does mean to separate. But it comes from an ancient word that literally means to cut. All right? Uh, or to separate away. Perhaps even a more accurate phrase would be a cut above something. Uh, sometimes when we purchase uh, maybe a product that is maybe, maybe superior to another product, we might say, oh, it's a cut above the rest, right? That's the idea here. These people are to be cut away from the rest because God has a special purpose for them. And so when we talk about God's holiness, we are talking about a standard, a standard for purity by which we measure all other things. This is a great quote I found from A.W. Tozer. 
Okay, this is what A.W. Tozer says about holiness, God's holiness. Holy is the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being other than it is. And because he's holy, his attributes are holy. That is, whatever we think of as belonging to God must be thought of as holy. You see, the story is told of a, of a woman in northern England who hung out her washing uh, to dry, and she was so proud of the whiteness of her garments, you know? And she said just, wow, this is the, amazing. And then in the nighttime, a snow came, and, and the snow covered uh, the ground in a blanket of white. And so she, when she woke up in the morning, she went out, and then seeing her clothes next to the blanket of white of snow, she cried out, she says, what can a woman do against God's almighty snow? <laughs> right? It's so white. But that is the idea. If you compare yourself, whatever you think of yourself as pure or perfect against other people, I know I can find people that I feel like I'm more pure and perfect than. Easy, right? Just about everybody. No, I'm just kidding, right? <laughs> I'm joking, right? But we do, we go, we do, we find people, we say, I'm, I'm, I'm not like that person. But you're comparing to the wrong standard. The standard is God. I'm holy and I am the standard. And if you want to think that you're perfect and sinless, measure against me. And you'll find out, oh yeah, the snow is whiter than I am. That's the idea there. R.C. Sproul is, uh, said this, when things are made holy, when they are consecrated, they are set apart unto purity. They are to be used in a pure way. They are to reflect purity as well as simple apartness. Purity is not excluded from the idea of holy. It's, it's contained within it, you see. So God is holy, and he has demanded the Israelites to be holy. Now, here's the catch, right? How can they be holy? In fact, I just said, how can any of us be holy? We can't measure up to God's holiness. We're to be consecrated, set apart unto purity. That is the idea. We're to be set apart for him. And that's the whole reason God gave them. If you, you go through all those uh, uh, restrictions in Leviticus, right? All those restrictions to living, all of those things were to separate them from the way the idolatrous world lived. John MacArthur gives a great explanation of this. He says, in all of this, all of those restrictions, God is teaching his people to live antithetically. That is, he is using these clean and unclean distinctions to separate Israel from other idolatrous nations who have no such restrictions. And he's illustrating by these prescriptions that his people must learn to live his way. Through dietary laws and rituals, God is teaching them the reality of living his way in everything. They're being taught to obey God in every seemingly mundane area of life so as to learn how crucial obedience is. Sacrifices, rituals, diet, and even clothing and cooking are all carefully ordered by God to teach them that they are to live differently from everyone else. And here's the key. This is to be an external illustration for the separation from sin in their hearts because the Lord is their God and they are to be utterly distinct. Do you see that? Externally distinct externally uh, separated so that they would get the idea that this has got to be the condition of your heart as well. So this message that Haggai is bringing him is to remind them of what their part of the covenant entailed. Yeah, God said he would be with you, and yeah, you should find courage, but why was he going to be with you? And then what is your job if he's going to be with you? It's to be set apart. It's to be holy. And so God promised to be with them, but they've got to be holy. And look at verses 15 to 17. He's reminding them. And now carefully consider, there's the third time he uses that word again, right? 
consider, set your hearts on, carefully consider, from this day forward, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days when one came to a heap of 20 ephahs, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw out 50 baths from the press, there were but 20. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail in all the labors of your hands, and yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. You see, the, the leanness that God had sent a, upon them is, is described vividly here, right? Yeah, I, I, I reduced your grain by 50%. You see that? You used to come for 20. You only found 10. I, I reduced your, your, your grape harvest by 60%. I sent blight. I sent mildew. I, and I did all of these things. Now, these specific things that are being mentioned by Haggai should have, should have reminded the people of something. Because a very similar mention of very similar things was mentioned by King Solomon when he dedicated the first temple to the Lord. And if you'd like to look there with me, I'd love for you to go back to 1 Kings chapter 8. Way back in the Old Testament there, 1 Kings chapter 8, King Solomon has finished building the magnificent uh, temple, and now he's dedicating it to the Lord. And he wisely, in his prayer considers that his people will fail, that they will fall into sin. And he's actually begging the Lord for mercy, that if people sin and they recognize that and that they face toward the temple and pray and ask for forgiveness, that God will hear their prayer. But he begins to, in the midst of that, explain the kinds of things he knows that God will do because of their sin. He doesn't just say, oh, if they sin, you know, forgive them. He lists the kinds of things that will happen in 1 Kings chapter 8. But I'm going to start in verse 35 because it's more directly related to the the things we see here. He says this, When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because they've sinned against you, when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and uh, and send rain on your land which you've given to your people as an inheritance. When there's a famine in the land, pestilence, or blight, or mildew, locusts, or grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land of the cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his own hands toward this temple, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. Did you catch the words there? Solomon's saying the very same things. When you send blight, when you send mildew, all those kind of things, the people are going to realize they have a plague in their heart. And if they have a plague in their heart and they pray for forgiveness, God in heaven hear them. Why? Because you know their heart. And you know if their prayer is, is real, is genuine. So you see this, this chastening, these things that God was doing was, was meant to turn them back. You know, interesting, Amos is another prophet that was sent to God's people. It was sent to Israel. Remember, remember we had Jeroboam up here on the stage and Rehoboam, right? Jeroboam up in Israel, the kingdom of the north, Rehoboam in the south. So you, you have Israel carried away, right, by Assyria because of their sin. And Amos was sent to them, and Amos said a very similar thing. In Amos chapter 4, verse 9, he said, I blasted you with blight and mildew. When your gardens increased, your vineyards, your fig trees, and your olive trees the locusts devoured them, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I did those things, 
because I expected you to return to me, but you, you didn't. You see the chastening? It's meant to turn you back to me. And Haggai says the exact same thing in verse 17, right? I struck you with blight and mildew and hail in all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. He expected them to turn back because life was so difficult. God was making it difficult for them so that they would turn back to him. Now, what's interesting, how did these prophets know that these specific things were going to be from the Lord, that God was going to send mildew and blight and, and these kind of things? The reason is, is because he told them that he would do that very thing. Way back in Deuteronomy, and you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it uh, to you, but in Deuteronomy chapter 28, it's a wonderful picture. There's these two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And, and, and God, God has just given to them all the blessings he's going to give them for obedience, but also the curses for disobedience. And so he says to write those two things down on separate lists on different stones, and on Mount Ebal, put all the curses, okay? All the curses for disobedience. And on Mount Gerizim, put all the blessings for uh, obedience. And that way people would go up and remember, that's right, God said, we didn't do this. This is what happened. Maybe they're going through that in their life, right? And they would go up and say, ah, oh, blight, mildew, that's, what it's, that's why it's happening right? And, and it would remind them. But in Deuteronomy 28, he actually lists very similar uh, things that he would do. And in verse 21, the Lord will make the plague cling to you until he has consumed you from the land which you are going to possess. The Lord will strike you with consumption, with fever, with inflammation, with severe burning fever, with the sword, with scorching, and, and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. Your, your heavens, which are over your head, shall be bronze, and the earth, which, which is under you, shall be iron, meaning you know, you're not going to get rain, you're not going to get crops. The Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and dust. From the heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. You don't turn from me, I'm going to keep doing it until you're no more. I mean, how long can you go without food, right? That's the point. You, I'm just going to keep doing it. But it's going to happen so that you come back to me. And that's what he's... This is the message he's given to Haggai. You must remember that these things are happening because you've gone wayward. Now, two more times in this next verse, Haggai says the very similar thing again to consider their lives. Look at verse 18. Consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Okay, so what he's saying is like, think back to when you finished the foundation, right? And when that work stopped all the way up until today, consider your life. What has it been like? Have you seen these things, right? Is it any better? In fact, he lists in verse 19, is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree, they have not yielded fruit. Just, just look, go to your barn. There's nothing there, right? Can you see I'm actively doing this? But what does he say at the very end of this verse? But from this day. I will bless you. See, what is God expecting here? A change of heart, right? If people realize the way they're living is contrary to the way God desires them to live, his expectation that people would go, oh yeah, I wish I would have known. I should, I, should, I should be living this way. You know what do we do? We just harden our hearts and we just keep on going, right? So this is a promise of a new start. Continue in faithful obedience. Rebuild that temple. And if you do that, I will renew those blessings. And we know that this is the message because remember Zechariah, the very next book, is a contemporary of Haggai. He's, he's a prophet sent at the same time. Um, Zechariah chapter 8, he gives them a very similar uh, picture. In verse 11, he says, But now I will not treat the remnant of this people as the former days, says the Lord of hosts. 
For the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give its fruit, the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their due. I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all of these. And it shall come to pass that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you and you shall be a blessing. Do not fear. Let your hands be strong. You know what I get from all of this? You think about how disobedient the people of Israel and Judah have been. You, you go through all the Old Testament and you get to something like this. God never gives up on his people. <laughs> like, uh, like, if you were this bad, I'd have given up on you guys a long time ago, right? <laughs> we wouldn't last that long. But God never gives up on his people. One of my favorite verses, Lamentations 3, 22 to 23. I quote this almost every morning. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. Why? Because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's where that great hymn comes from. Great is thy faithfulness, right? Oh God, my Father. We have mercies every morning. New mercies. And the reason we know that's true is because I'm not consumed. And the reason I'm not consumed by God's holiness, right, is because he's merciful. But he could because he's a holy God. But what I love about this is it means that we can have a new start any day. It doesn't matter how bad your life has been going, what you've done in the past. Forget that. What are you doing today, right? You can have a new start today. Your mercies are new now. This is a fresh start. But from this day, he says, I will bless you. Love that. So God has reminded them of the dangers of the contamination of sin and exhorting them back to the holy lifestyle. And it begins by obedience coming from the heart. The second part here is God reinstates a coronation. And this is very interesting, and, and it's going to take a little bit of time to un, unpack a bit. But let me just start here, verse, uh, verse 20, and the first part of 21. Same day, another message comes. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. So this is a message. The last one was to the priests, right? And then to the people. This one is specifically for the leader, Zerubbabel, the governor, right? He had to be discouraged, right? He was leading these people, and now they're complaining again. I mean, he, he was probably finding this hard. See, I have a message for him, and this, this is an encouraging message. Look at verse 21. I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. Now, this is a promise to judge the Gentile nations. Um, he's going to destroy their strength. He's going to destroy and overthrow their power. And this is a promise that there will one day be a worldwide change in government, both, both politically, but also militarily. Notice the chariots and the horses and riders, which would have been the military power of the day. And when you go not too far back in history from Haggai to King Nebuchadnezzar, remember King Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians, who took these guys into captivity, right? King Nebuchadnezzar had a vision, and he had a vision in Daniel chapter 2. And in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar sees this great uh, statue, and it's got a head of gold, he's got a chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze. He's got legs of, of iron, and then the feet are, are part iron and part clay. I think I have a picture uh, of it you can put up. There we go. And he's wondering what it all uh, means. And, and it is Daniel that goes and, and begins to tell him what it all uh, means. 
He says, well, the head of gold is you, king. The head of gold represents Babylon, right? But then that next section, the chest and the arms of silver represent a next power, the power that will come after Babylon. And we know from history, the power that comes after Babylon is the Medo-Persian Empire, right? And even during the writing here, we see that the Persians are in uh, control because King Darius in there. And so you have the Persian Empire in, in power. Then the belly and thighs of bronze represent the next power, which was the Grecian Empire, right? The Greeks conquered Persia. And then you have, after the Greeks, the legs of iron, and that's Rome. And Rome is the great power on earth after that. But then you come to these, these feet, and you have these, these toes, and they're ten toes, right? And they're, unless you're weird and you have nine, um, they're part iron and part clay. And they represent a future ten empire kingdom. And, and Daniel specifically says that that will be partly strong, but partly fragile, because the part iron and part clay won't really mix together. But something happens to the statue in the dream. And in Daniel chapter 2, verses 34 to 35, this is what happens. He says, you watched while a stone was cut out with ha- out hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, so it's going right up the body, right, were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That is a strange dream. And what is it speaking of is that the overthrow of these Gentile kingdom is going to be pictured by this stone that, it, that destroys the statue. And then the stone fills up the whole earth in place of those kingdoms. Well, what does it all mean? Daniel tells us in Daniel chapter 2, verse 43 to 44. He says, as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So in the one part, you have a stone that comes and crushes and destroys the statue. And then he says um, that these are kings um, and that the God of heaven has sent the kingdom here. And this new kingdom represented by this stone will destroy everything else and it will be the final kingdom. It will stand, what is it? Forever. Now, the coming of that stone is described in Revelation 19. It's not an actual stone. Who is it? It's our cornerstone. It's Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ comes in Revelation 19 and faces all the Gentile nations at the battle of Armageddon. So Bruce Willis, in the movie version of Armageddon, has a giant stone hurling towards earth, is not far off, (laughs) just a bit. (laughs) The stone there is a meteor, it's not Jesus. But figuratively, in this vision, that's the stone. And what we're talking about here is the end times, that's what we're talking about, okay? So notice now that the specific promise is concerning Zerubbabel during these end times. That's why you have to know that context, okay? This is not for the time that they're in. It's for the end times. Notice in verse 23, in that day. Do you see that? In that day, that future day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shetil, says the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I've chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, lot to pack here. Let me, let me just try to do this as, as best I can. So he's going to make Zerubbabel like a signet ring. First of all, what's a signet ring? The signet ring was that ring that the kings would wear, right? And that they had their royal seal on it. 
and uh, they would basically use it as a seal of authority and ownership. Uh, they would put a little hot wax on, a, say, a document, and they would then stamp it with the king's royal seal, and then that emblem would be on the wax of that uh, document, and then you would know that that item belonged to the king. It came from the king, okay? So what's the big deal? Why is this important? Well, it's not necessarily important because of who Zerubbabel was, but because of who he was related to. Now, stay with me, because this is awesome. I love things like this in the Bible, all right? Zerubbabel was the grandson of King Jehoiachin. King Jehoiachin was the second to last king in Judah. When Babylon was invading, they came in three waves, okay? In the first uh, wave they came, they came during the reign of Jehoiachin's father, a very similar name, Jehoiakim, okay? Jehoiakim became a vassal of Nebuchadnezzar, so he served him for a while. But after three years, he got tired of that and he rebelled. Well, what happens? He dies, Now, during that first invasion from Nebuchadnezzar, that's probably when people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were taken into captivity, the first invasion. The second invasion came when this this son was in power. And in in 2 Kings 24, 6, just so you can get the the, the picture here, you have, says this, so Jehoiakim, that's the father, rested with his fathers, and then Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. Now, Jehoiachin is also known in scripture by by two other names. He's known as Jeconiah, which makes this confusing, and Coniah, so a shortened version of that. And we know this because there's a very, very important prophecy made against him found in the book of Jeremiah. And you've got to see this, so you really need to turn there. So make a left-hand turn, go back to Jeremiah chapter 22. This is really cool. All right, Jeremiah chapter 22, beginning of verse 24. Jeremiah 22, beginning in verse 24. Mine is titled, Message to Coniah, okay? And it says this, As I live, says the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off, and I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life, and into the hand of those whose Face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. So I will will cast you out and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. Now, that's exactly what happens. When you read about this in 2 Kings chapter 24, you can read on your your own. He, He reigns for all of three whole months, okay? And the king comes in his second invasion and takes Jehoiachin into Babylonian captivity, and he never returns. He stays there the rest of his days, okay? Now, notice what Jeremiah says in verse 30 now, okay? Skip down. Thus says the Lord, still speaking of Coniah, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. Now, may not mean much to you, but if you were a Jew and you were getting this message, this is devastating. Because you know exactly what it means. Because we all know that the the kingly line, all right, those who would rule in Israel came through the tribe of Judah, right? We learn in Genesis chapter uh, 49.10 that that is given to us. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, right? The kingly line. You have 12 tribes. One of them is going to be the kingly tribe, right? So Jacob says it's going to be Judah. So all the Jews knew that. And then you had the prophet Micah who prophesied that out of Bethlehem, just a little town in Judah, 
right, would, would bring forth the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth and back and forth would be from everlasting to everlasting. And they came to believe that that would be the Messiah, right? The ultimate king. So to come and hear a message that there were going to be no more kings, this is the last king, and he's taken into captivity, never going to see him again, and he's going to be childless, is devastating. There's no way that Judah can have a king. There's no kingly line anymore. And so that means no Jesus can come. No Messiah can come. There's no hope for anyone. This is known as the curse of Jeconiah, okay? And we know it's the same guy because it very clearly says in Jeremiah that he's the son of, of Jehoah Kim, king of Judah, which is why I put that verse up there so you know. We're talking about the same guy, even though he calls him Coniah. He's also known as uh, Jeconiah. Now, this is, this is super important. Because what is going to happen? If this kingly line has been ended, there's not going to be any more kings, what's going to happen to Jesus? This, go back to Haggai, okay? We are at the end of it, and it is one little verse, isn't it? Verse 23, one little verse. This one little verse is the answer. This is the verse. Jeconiah, back in Jeremiah, was the signet ring. God said, I'm going to take you off, right? And I'm going to send you away into captivity, Zerubbabel is a signet ring that he's going to put back on. <laughs> Do you see that? God has reversed the curse here in Haggai. These are a discouraged people, right? And part of this would have been known. Like, what's the point of all this? Because we know God's cursed the line. There's no more kings coming. There's no kingly line, and we're not going to see the Messiah. But he says Zerubbabel is going to be the signet ring. And remember, this passage is dealing with that day, though, right? The future day, the eschatological future day in times. So this is not a prophecy that Zerubbabel himself would actually then rule on the Davidic throne in his day, okay? He's owned by the Lord's signet ring. He's a representative in a representative position as the son of David. But that would be fulfilled in the future in the Messianic kingdom. Because of these words from Haggai, we find something very interesting when you go to the uh, genealogies in Matthew and in Luke, right? And I'm just going to end by taking us there in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke uh, chapter 3. Just make a short right-hand turn because you're almost there. Uh, there are two genealogies, aren't there? And if you want to know what the difference is, we're just going to look at Matthew's today. But if you want to know what the difference is, Matthew's genealogy uh, really just goes from Abraham to Jesus. It just goes that, that far, far back. And it's focusing on the legal right to the throne because it's through the tribe of Judah. Luke's is a different genealogy. You should know that. It goes all the way back to Adam. It traces Adam to Jesus, and it traces Luke being a doctor, the bloodline. Okay, so the bloodline genealogy is in Luke. The kingly line, the tribe line, is in Matthew. That's important just for you to understand. But in Matthew chapter 1, verse 11, look what it says. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time that they were carried away to Babylon. That's the same guy, Jehoachin, Coniah. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shittiel, and Shittiel begot who? Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel begot Abiud, Abiud, Eliakim, Eliakim, Azor, Azor, Zadok, Zadok, Akim, Akim, Eliud, Eliud, Eleazar, Eleazar, Mathen, Mathen, Jacob, Jacob, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Zerubbabel becomes right back inserted into the royal line because of the prophecy given by Haggai, the very end of this book. 
It's incredible. And just so you know, Zerubbabel's name appears also in Luke's genealogy. So it's almost as if God has given them a little preview of of how he's going to begin to bless them. He says, from this day forward, I'm going to bless you. Well, it's one thing to say you're going to bless us from this day forward. I mean, there's still no wine, right? There's still no grain. Here's how I'm going to bless you. I'm bringing the king. The kingly lines are stored, right? Amazing. Now, Zerubbabel had done nothing to earn this. He just simply says, for I have chosen you. You see that? I've chosen you. I've chosen you. You're going to be my servant. And you know what? Yeah, there would be many centuries of struggle ahead but for the Jews, but now they would be assured that the Messiah was still going to come. And they would indeed, uh, he would indeed uh, defeat the Gentile nations, and he would establish a glorious uh, millennial kingdom. And God promises them forgiveness. He promises them healing, and all that will come with repentance. And in 2 um, Chronicles seven fourteen, it says, If my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. And so that's a promise to his people. Listen, if you just turn, honestly, you're a consecrated people. I've set you apart. Just turn away from those things. I'm going uh, to bless you. And for us today, in, in light of what we've heard, in light of our knowledge of the return of a king, how are we to live? Well, I open today's service with it in Titus chapter 2, and I'm going to read it again, beginning of verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, why? That he might redeem us, from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. You see, Israel is not God's only special people. You are. And he wants you to be special people that are hungry, zealous, eager to do good works. Why? Because the king is coming to sit on his throne. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. What an encouraging word that must have been to the people in Haggai's day. Oh, Lord, you reversed the curse. The king will come. And Lord, we believe that today, that you will come and you will set up your kingdom here on earth. And Lord, that we are your people. You've called your church um, the the bride. And you love us like a, a husband loves his wife. And what an amazing picture that is, Lord. And I just pray today, Lord, we would really let that sink in. If that is true, that is true, what kind of people do you want us to be? Lord, your word says that you've, you've redeemed us from lawlessness, from, from darkness. You've placed us in a kingdom of, of light. So why should we continue to muck about in the dark? Oh, Lord, would you help us? Help our hearts to just fully be for you. Lord, to realize that we're here for a short time, just a short time. And we're to live for you, to bring glory to you. You've consecrated us. You've set us apart to be a people zealous to do good for you. Thank you, Lord, for this word to us, for this wonderful message from Haggai. And I just pray, Lord, that you encourage your people today. doesn't matter what they've done in the past, where they've come from. Would you remind them today is a new day that you promised from this day forward. If you just live for me from this day forward, I will bless you. Thank you, Lord. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name.